last fall, uh, I was doing some reading through the Bible, and I came across a story in the Gospel of Matthew, which is called the Parable of the Talents. It's a story where a guy goes away on a long journey, and he gives his servants these, these sums of money to work with while he's away. If you've grown up in the church, you probably have some level of familiarity with this story. You know, I know I've read and I've studied it multiple times. But when I was reading it this fall, I felt God nudge me in a little bit of a, a non-traditional direction. Right? There, there's some elements of this parable that seem a bit cryptic. And you know, sometimes if, you like, you know, if you're doing some devotional reading, it's like, I don't know what that means. I'm just going to skip by it. Right? You, you know, you, sometimes you wanna, don't want to take that extra effort to go into it. But, but something kind of cued me into uh, an interpretation of the text that I wanted to hatch out a little bit more. Because when, when we come to the interpretation of the text, the interpretation should inform what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about ourselves. And I do think that this nudge was aided in the fact that we were currently, at the time, going through the gospel-centered life material. And so some of the themes, if, if you were here this past fall, here in some of those sermons, you'll probably see a little bit of a, um, kind of a remix of, of some of those themes. So if you want to turn there, the parable of the talents can be found in Matthew 25. So go ahead, pull out your Bibles, Bible apps, whatever you like to use. You can use our blue and white pew Bibles. But after you open it up, keep it open, because instead of just reading through the text and then commenting on it as a whole, I want to move through it somewhat progressively, making comments as we go. All right, hopefully you've had a chance to find that. Now before we read this, I want to set what the context is. Right? Context is really important because the, these, these uh, stories didn't just kind of happen in a vacuum. There's usually other elements that is important to help us better understand and interpret it. So I want you to go back one chapter. Maybe you have to flip a page back. Maybe it's you know, on the same page. But look at chapter 24. Right? So if you look at the first three verses of, of Matthew 24... You have Jesus walking around in Jerusalem with his disciples. They're commenting on the buildings, and Jesus says, look, this temple might seem imposing to you, but there's going to be a time when it is going to be leveled. One stone's not going to be left on another. And so the next paragraph begins with verse 3, and you have the disciples approach Jesus, and they ask a very logical question, right? Something significant, you just said something significant is going to happen when. When is this going to happen? Now, if you are still on chapter 24 and just kind of scroll through, skim through the rest of that chapter, you know, if you're reading the ESV, it has title headings like signs of the end of the age, the coming of the Son of Man. No one knows that day and hour. Right? Jesus' teaching through this chapter is focused around the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. Right, that there are some signs that are going to accompany his return, but it is also going to happen at a time when folks are surprised. It's unexpected. So that's, that's chapter 24. That's what happened right before our chapter. Now flip back to chapter 25. Th this chapter begins with two parables. The first is the parable of the ten virgins. It's, again, another one of these kind of cryptic par parables. But the main point of that parable, if you skim through it, is that when the Lord returns, when the bridegroom, who is representative of the Lord, 
when he returns, you don't want to be caught unprepared. Right? You don't want to be going and doing your, your Christmas shopping on Christmas Day, if you will. You're going to be locked out of the house. You want to be ready. You want to anticipate being invited into the feast that is to follow. So all this sets up our story this morning. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, is the parable of the talents. But the reason the context is important is because the main point of the story, following suit, has to be related to the timing of the kingdom of God. That no one knows when it is going to come, so it is of the utmost importance that we be prepared and ready for its arrival. Right? Keep that in mind, because I, I want this parable to be meaningful to us, and I, I, I want us to keep that picture in our heads. What does it mean for us to be ready? All right, let's ju- jump into the text. I'm just going to read the first verse for, to start. Matthew 25, 14. For it the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, when Jesus taught, he did so in the form of stories. And these stories oftentimes, not always, but often were meant to have some type of symbolism or connection to our experience and understanding of life. So here in the first verse, we have a few characters that are meant to represent something more than just fictional characters in the story. First, we have this man who goes on a journey. This is meant to be a reference, symbolic of God, symbolic of Jesus. He is leaving home for an undefined period of time. So then he calls his servants, which are meant to represent his people. It's meant to represent us, those in God's household. Now, as the man prepares for his trip, he takes his property and he entrusts it to his servants. Now, let's be clear. This property, that what we're going to see in a moment, is financial in nature. It doesn't belong to the servants, but it's the master's. It continues to be the master's even when he is not physically present at the estate. All right, verse 15. To one, how he doles out this property. To one, he gave five talents to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So now we see that the property that the master is giving is sums of money to these servants. The text says according to their ability. Now the Bible often uses language that doesn't fit with our everyday understanding. Like I said a few minutes ago, right? they didn't have things like indoor plumbing. They didn't have a toilet the way that we can understand it. They didn't have a shower the way that we understand it. So a lot of times there are these these elements that are used that are culturally distinct from ours. I don't know about you, but I don't usually do business in talents. So a talent is it's a it's a set of weights, about seventy five pounds. But when in the New Testament they use uh, and it was usually gold or silver, it was some type of precious metal. Now, when the New Testament authors used the classification of a talent, it was, it was a kind of a, a symbolic way or a representative way to describe about 20 years' wages for a common worker. You know, a lot of times they use language that wasn't exact and precise like ours. Like we might say, uh, you know, that this pandemic is something that happens once in a generation. Well, is a generation 15 years? You know, kind of like Gen X, Millennial, Gen Z. Is it, is it like... 30 years, 
about the age when we have kids. Is it you know, meant to be 100 years, right? So, so our word generation can carry, a, it's not precise. It could mean different types of uh, time periods. A talent also was kind of like that. It kind of encompassed a, you know, 20, approximately 20 years of wages because it represented 6,000 denarii, which a denarii was uh, one day's wage for common labor. So let's, I want to try to bring this into the 21st century. Let's imagine, let's consider a 40-hour work week at minimum wage. A talent would be equal, one talent would be equal to about $300,000. So here, the master who's giving between five and one talents is giving his servants between $300,000 and $1.5 million of our dollars to work with. Okay, let's get back to the text. Verses 16 to 18. What did they do with this, this investment? He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the first two servants utilized the resources that were given of them, and they were productive with it. They went out, they worked hard, they turned a profit for their master. They doubled their investment. Now just a reminder, right, they're, as they're making profits, they're not doing so for themselves, but they're doing it for the landlord. But the last guy, right, he took his 300K and he basically hid it in the proverbial mattress, trying to keep it safe. At this point in the story, we don't know his motivation, if it was fear or if it was laziness. We just know that while the first two servants were industrious and creative, the last one was unwilling to take any risks with the money. Verse 15, now, or excuse me, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. All right, here's, here's this symbolism again. The master is away for a long time, but eventually returns. Now, this is, this is the text getting back to the heart of the context that I said a few moments ago. There is a time when Jesus is going to come back and settle accounts. We need to make sure that we are ready. So as the listener, we should be tuning in to hear what comes next so that we learn that the lesson of Jesus, of what does it mean for us to prepare for his arrival. Verses 20 to 23. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master returns, and the first two servants come parading their prophets before him. And what we see with both of these is that the master uses a verbatim formula for both. And, and we can see this. He responds the same way in verses 21 and 23, respectfully. Let's, let's take a look at that formula. First, the servants hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
words of affirmation. The master, God, is pleased with their work. Right? These are the words that I think we long to hear. We want to know that the work that we do matters, that is valued, that it is seen by someone. When we strive and work for the kingdom of God, this should be our highest reward, that we do it for the joy of the Father. But next he says that they have been faithful, faithful over a little. They have shrewdly taken the resources given to them and utilized them in responsible ways on behalf of the master. Now, just as an aside, what does this say about the master? Right? He takes these five and two talents, respectively, as being faithful over a little, right? As I said, we're talking about between 600000 and $1.5 million is a little, right? What is completely out of reach for me is chump change for God. I don't want to get too caught up in the amounts because the primary word, though, that we should see here, the way that God describes their activity is that they have been faithful over a little. The master is then going to set the servants up to be responsible over much. And here we see a causation, or at the very least a correlation, between faithfulness in small things and responsibility over larger things. Now, I don't think that we can get around this relationship between the two. So many of us want power, we want money, we want authority, maybe all for good purposes, to, to glorify God, to heal this broken world. But some of us, in desiring that, are missing a few steps in this process. We want God to give us much when we haven't been tested or, in, or we haven't been found faithful over our stewardship of a little. It's important to focus on the small things, the small things that are in front of us right now, to ensure that we're being faithful there. That's where we need to start in our stewardship of, it, of those things. Finally, he invites them, the servants, into the joy of their master. This is a reference to heaven, right? The kingdom of God, especially as we see it contrasted with the words that the master gives to the final servant, the one who hid the master's money. So let, let's get there. Let's see this final exchange. Matthew 25, 24 to 30. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap what I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So verse 25 reveals 
the motivation, at least what he thought was the motivation of the servant, that he was afraid. He was so focused on not screwing up that he was unwilling to take any risks with the master's possession. He decides that he isn't going to gamble with someone else's money. He's not going to play the stock market with money that's not actually his. Now, I don't know about you, but in some ways I can relate to this guy. It seems somewhat virtuous. He appears to be responsible in another way. He wants to make sure that he is protecting the master's possessions so that there is something there for when he returns. He, don't want, he doesn't want to you know, play the stock market, have, lose it all, and then have nothing to show for it. But it's clear that that's not the right answer, not what the master was looking for. Look at how the master responds in verse 20, 26. The master uses the very words of the servant against him in order to condemn him. Right? The servant acknowledges his own guilt. You, ha- you reap what you haven't sown, and, and, and you collect places where you haven't gathered s- scattered seed. And the master treats him justly. He strips him of his talents and gives it to the one who already has ten. Now, almost as if there's an assumption, because I know I, I often feel like this seems unfair, right? He's only got one, and you're giving it to the guy that has ten. Why not give it to the guy that has four? Right? Build some balance in this. And then Jesus makes this kind of cryptic comment in verse 29 that I'm going to circle back to in a minute. And then he concludes in verse 30, the servant who for the first time is called worthless is cast into darkness. He's symbolically is removed from the presence of God. Now typically, after hearing a sermon about this parable, the take-home that I have usually heard is something along the lines of this. Be like the first two servants. You know, be productive for the kingdom of God. And out of that, our motivation is that we desire to experience the pleasant, the affirming responses of the master that the first two received and avoid kind of the the, the unpleasant one of the final servant. Now, reading through this superficially, that seems to make sense. I stated a few minutes ago that you can't get away from this relationship between the faithfulness of the servants and the master giving them greater responsibilities. Now, my big problem with that application, like I said, I've heard this a number of times, that's that superficial reading of the text, is that I think that this application cultivates a works-righteous attitude in us. We want to take these gifts of God, turn them into a prophet, And then when Jesus comes back, we can joyfully show what we have done, all in an effort to earn God's favor. The plain reading of the text seems to indicate that God's positive disposition, that God is pleased, is conditional upon our productivity of what we bring to the table. So we think that if I can show God that I have produced something, he's going to be happy with us. But if God comes back and, man, I'm not productive enough, he's going to be displeased with me. Let me say that again. Reading through this plainly, we might think that God is pleased with us if we have something to show and displeased if we don't. And so the result is we tax ourselves. We work really hard so that we have something to show for our labor. And then hopefully God will let us into heaven let us into his presence. We see this all the time, that we place value on our kingdom production. What are we doing for God? We allow our identities, 
whether we're a good Christian or a bad Christian. I should put those in quotes because I don't think there is such a thing as a good Christian and a bad Christian, but that's a message for another day. We allow our identity to be shaped by these metrics. You know, I think one of the easiest places to see this is anytime you get a group of pastors together in a room and they hang out and they start talking about churches. Usually one of the first questions that come up is always, how many people did you have each week? Not because it's out of like a, a spirit of competition. It's just that instinctively we don't have a better way to gauge the effectiveness of ministry outside of attendance, outside of numbers. So that's just what it's so easy to default of. If I've got a big church, God is pleased with me. I'm doing God's will. If I have a small church, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe God's displeased with my, my ministry. When I was, I was working in Oakland with Pitt students, there's a pretty large church in the suburbs who decided that they wanted to, they, they were in the, um, kind of like the North Hills area, and they decided that they wanted to plant a branch campus in Oakland. Their senior pastor at the time made comments like, we are bringing Jesus to Oakland, ignoring the fact that, for, that there were a dozen evangelical churches and ministries that had been already serving the students of Pitt and CMU for decades. I sat down with their first campus pastor very early in the plants, and I explained. I was on the, the, uh, their version of the ministerium. It was called UPAC, University of Pittsburgh Association of Chaplaincies. And I, I expressed that, that some of the ministries were con- a little concerned because you had this very well-funded, this very polished megachurch that was coming in, and it might cause them to, to miss out on some opportunities to do ministry. No lie, this is what this guy, this guy said to me. He said, and I quote, if some of the small ministries lose members and are forced to shut down, it just means that they were mediocre to begin with. Friends, I think this is the fruit of those types of interpretations. We manufacture this conditional relationship where God's favor towards us directly correlates with what we are able to produce for Him. But that doesn't fit with the gospel. We spent months last fall going through the elements of the gospel-centered life, constantly hammering in us that in Christ we are perfectly and fully loved by God. That there is nothing that we can do to make Him love us more. And conversely, there isn't anything we can do, thank the Lord, to screw it up, cause Him to love us less. Now, while the vast majority of Christians would state that, that we don't earn our way to heaven, we talk the talk, but we often don't walk the walk. We continue to live as if our eternal destinies are somehow on the chopping block if we don't make the cut on some arbitrary metric, usually of our own creation. Here's what I think is going on in this parable. Because I don't think that the take-home should be work really hard for the kingdom of God. That might be something that we should do, but I don't think that's the main point of this parable. Look back at verse 29. That cryptic statement. Jesus says that everyone who has, more will be given to abundance, but the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I don't know about you. When I read that, that second half seems really weird. How can something be taken away if you don't have anything? Unless 
the thing that is either had or not had is a different type of possession than the thing which is given or taken away. If you don't have, and what you have is taken away, that only makes sense if they are two characteristically different types of possessions. Think about it this way. You're riding a train. The usher approaches two different passengers and asks to see their tickets. The first one shows her ticket to verify that she is in the right seat on the train. The second one doesn't have a ticket. They're a stowaway. The usher stops the train and kicks the hitchhiker off the train. The second passenger was lacking one thing, a ticket, which caused him to lose something else, something qualitatively different, passage on the train. And as we think about this in the context of our parable, the worthless servant wasn't lacking the ta- a talent. He hadn't lost it. He didn't have nothing to show for it. He had in that moment something in his possession. The talent was taken as the consequence of him not having something else. It is my opinion that the thing that separated the first two servants from the last servant was genuine faith. The litmus test to inclusion for God's kingdom is not the production that we bring to the table for God, but are we saved by Christ through faith? Do we acknowledge the goodness of God and trust in His saving work in our lives? That is the bar by which we are measured I mean, go back to verse 24. When the servant attempts to explain himself to his master, he starts off by saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. We saw that the master turns his very words against him in judgment, but he omits that comment about being a hard man. I think the problem here for the final servant was not that he didn't produce anything, but that his fear of the master allowed him to be paralyzed kept him from action, and that that fear was completely unfounded, that he failed to recognize the goodness and grace of the master before him. I mean, just to further investigate my point, look at verses 21 and 23, right? The first two servants are lauded, not for their productivity. You were productive with a little, I will set you over much, but their faithfulness. The Greek here used for faithfulness, it's an adjective, but it's based on the verb, pistuo, which means to believe, where we get this concept of belief in God, faith. You could read it as if they were believing in little. I don't know, maybe that's meant to be a a reference to the minuscule seed of faith, right? Faith like a mustard seed, which yields powerful dividends, a metaphor that Jesus uses elsewhere. I'm going out on a limb here because I'm I'm trying to extrapolate something that the, the biblical text doesn't explicitly state. But I believe that if the master had come back and those first two money, excuse me, first two servants had lost some of the money or maybe even all of it, but they had been faithful in using it, I don't think the master would have been angry with them. The issue for me was not whether or not they possessed the financial resources, but have they laid hold of that seed of faith for the master? If that is the case, then the most important 
thing for us in this parable is not productivity, but is laying a hold of faith. That we are tasked with faithfulness from God. Not necessarily productivity. And I hope that that's, you know, this kind of sermon preaches itself in terms of application. That, you know, we might need to change our thinking that God's affection for us is not conditional upon what we generate. That when we are in Jesus Christ, God is fully satisfied with us. But as I said at the start of our passage this morning, that the immediate context shows that this, this, like the parables around it, is a story about readiness. Will we be ready when the Master returns after his long journey? So I want to close very briefly by trying to answer that question. What does the parable teach us that it means to be ready? Readiness means that we see God clearly that we have genuine faith in his goodness and the righteousness that he has given us through Jesus Christ. It means that we are freed up to take risks in his name. We have the freedom to fail, resting in the grace of the Lord. God isn't a capitalist. God is not... we, We live in a capitalistic society one that was founded upon Judeo-Christian ethics, but God himself is not a capitalist. By that, I mean that he isn't all about maximizing profits and minimizing losses. He is not about overworking his employees or maybe giving them a a quarter, you know, a a 25-cent raise so that he can rake in an extra billion dollars. God's desire is that we know him and recognize his goodness. I was listening just yesterday to to Corey Asbury's song, Uh, the Father's house, and he says, you never wanted perfect, you just wanted my heart. That is what the Father, or the Master, wanted in this exchange, I believe. Being ready means that we condition ourselves to see that. We may need to change the tapes that play to ourselves. We spend time in prayer, reading the Scriptures, training ourselves to rely on the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, so that when the Lord comes again. We approach Him in faith, in confidence, like we sang about, and that God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of our independent productivity, but because He looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and sees that applied, imputed is the word a lot of theologians use in our lives. And what that does is it frees us up to work in his name. Not because we have to. Not because God's going to be angry or disappointed if we don't. But that we get to enjoy to participate with what he's done. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, break us out of these cultural ways in which we read scripture. That we are such a byproduct of the culture we live in and living in this kind of capitalistic American society, consumeristic society. It is so easy to read the Bible through that lens. Remind us that what you want from our lives is ultimately not about what we can do for you. It's ultimately not about our productivity. God, you can be far more productive without us, but you invite us into your business. You invite us into your work that we can partner with you. 
May we lay hold of that seed of faith that allows us to enter into that partnership, not for ourselves, not for our eternal destinies, not for your favor, but for joy in working with you. Guide us in this this week. In Jesus' name, amen.